In 2019, we recorded an episode covering the protests that were going on in Chile. Chile has a tradition of protests, but this one was different. More than a million people protested in the streets of Santiago, the nation's capital. A listener from Santiago, Gustavo de la Piedra, shared this audio with us. Hola, Pitchfork listeners. This is Gustavo from Santiago. The pitchforks have come to Chile. Every day for the past month, the Plaza Italia has been overrun with hundreds of thousands of demonstrators who have come to protest a deeply unequal society. It turns out that the government favored a small elite in lieu of the people for far too long, and the country decided it had had enough. Citizens have been protesting due to, among other things, low wages, mismanagement of public funds, increased cost of living, healthcare problems, and perceived abuse of citizens' pension plans, not to mention enormous income inequality. Since the beginning of the protests, more than 1,500 people have been wounded and 20 killed in violent clashes, including at least five killed by live ammunition. The riots left a lot of destruction and ashes in their wake, not only in the capital Santiago, but in many cities. Luckily, it was relatively short-lived, only a month or so, which is very brief compared to demonstrations that have taken place in other countries, some of which are quelled with military force, continue for years, or never succeed. The government has given in to many of the demands of the people, and we are emerging from this a better country. Led by young people, Chile has woken up. The population is now demanding the resignation of conservative president Sebastián Piñera. Despite government concessions and the resignation of several ministers, anger has not subsided. The country's pain runs too deep. This was about vast inequality, but it was also about holding a constitutional assembly to create a new constitution. The constitution at the time was written under a neoliberal dictatorship that had promised that a free market would lead to prosperity for all. Instead, it led to radical inequality. The current president, 36-year-old Gabriel Boric, a leader of the protests, came into office in March of this year. He ran on reforming the free market economic model. During his campaign, he said, if Chile was the cradle of neoliberalism, it will also be its grave. Do not be afraid of the youth changing this country. Will this uprising against neoliberalism lead to lasting change? Three years later, we're following up. Today, I'm speaking with Marcelo Casals, an independent scholar based in Santiago. He holds a PhD in Latin American history from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and wrote a recent article for Dissent magazine titled, The End of Neoliberalism in Chile? My name is Marcelo Casals. I'm a historian from Chile dedicated to the study of the Latin American Cold War. Uh, with a special focus on Chile. I have written some books and articles on revolutionary and also 
uh, right wing uh, movements in the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s in Chile. Currently, I am a postdoctoral fellow at the Free University of Berlin here uh, in Germany. Well, well, thank you for jo joining us. Uh, we, of course, have been uh, uh, watching what's been happening in Chile over the past couple of years with a lot of interest here at Civic Ventures and on the podcast, because, of course, we spend a lot of time critiquing neoliberalism. And if there's any country, any people who have been a victim of neoliberalism over the past few decades, it's the people of Chile. If you could just give us a little background on, on what is happening in Chile at, at the moment and uh, your perspective on the uprising there. Well, as you know, uh, in uh, October 2019, there were a huge social protest and why that happened? Well, that is the question that the Chilean intellectuals and politicians are still dealing with. Uh, of course, it was a combination of factors, mainly related with the very deep structural inequality that had characterized the country for the last 50 years or so. It was also a social react reaction against the political establishment since for many reasons, they have been unable to deal with this problem. But more importantly, uh, from my view, uh, the uprising in 2019 was the result of a hegemonic crisis of what can be called a, a neoliberal democracy in Chile during the last 30 years. Even though that neoliberal democracy was uh, able to change the material conditions of the country in general. I mean, it wasn't capable of a, a building a more harmonious interred society. The Chilean society is a very, very uh, fractured uh, society. And also this model, this neoliberal democracy didn't react to the deep cultural and social changes of the last few years. For many people, it became pretty obvious that they were over the, the terminate by their class situation. And at the same time, they didn't find the proper institutional channels uh, to express their demands. So, so let's uh, go into this a little deeper. One of the main demands of the uprising and a demand that is currently being met was uh, a new constitution to replace the old neoliberal constitution uh, that was put in place by the uh, Pinochet uh, regime, the, the longtime dictator. What is it in that old constitution uh, that has uh, stuck uh, Chile with a uh, neoliberal democracy as opposed to, I would suppose, what we might think of as a liberal democracy? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Actually, uh, what is interesting uh, to say, to notice, is that the constitution was not at the center of the uprising at the beginning. Uh, of course, uh, replacing the constitution has been a historical demand of the left wing since the constitution was created during the military dictatorship. 
And given the nature of the democratic transition, it was impossible to replace it. The army and the right wing and the business class were very powerful during the 90s. So the center-left political establishment accepted the constitution after some reforms uh, in 1989 uh, and then again in 2005. But the people who participate in or support the protests, as I did, became aware during the uprising that at the center of their demands was the constitution. Uh, it was also a way out to a very difficult situation uh, during October and November 2019. The protests didn't have a clear leadership. The right-wing uh, government of Sebastián Piñera sought to suppress the protests by repression. Right? That is why the National Congress decided to approve a constitutional reform in order to replace the constitution. I think that is a good uh, thing uh, because that allowed to the conflict to become institutionalized. And at the same time, it opened the door to a major political change. So um, yeah, it, it, it was a, um, a good thing, especially if we, if we compare that situation with what was happening at the same time in Colombia, right? Where the right. constitution was not the issue. This was like the way out to uh, that situation in 2019. Now, um, to answer your question, uh, of course, the word neoliberal does not appear in the constitution, uh, right. but uh, originally the constitution was a mechanism to consolidate the economic reforms imposed by the dictatorship uh, in the second part of the 70s. Uh, the constitution, for instance, had at its core the defense of poverty rights. It, al it also defined the state as subsidiary, which means that uh, it can only intervene where the market can't do it, right? Right. More importantly, I, I, I think uh, this constitution designed a very a very limited democracy that in the end can't change the basis of this economic system. It's no accident, I suppose, that uh, this constitution essentially imposes the primacy of the market over the democracy, uh, considering uh, how informed it was by what, what we call the Chicago boys, the economists coming from the University of Chicago. H how large a role did they did they play in the shaping of the constitution and the democracy that that followed uh, the the fall of the dictatorship? Well, the constitution was designed by the dictatorship and also by the civilian advisors. As far as I know, the Chicago boys themselves didn't participate directly in the process of the elaboration of this constitution. But as I said before, the constitution as a whole was an attempt to consolidate the economic reforms of the 70s. And of course, the Chicago boys, especially in the 70s, but also in the 80s, were a central part of the civilian advisor of the uh, dictatorship. And many of them were still very important in, during the 90s and the 2000s. 
as you know economic authorities right so uh -huh. even though they didn't participate in the elaboration of the constitution they have been their most salient defenders of this uh of what i call uh, a neoliberal democracy right so so when when we last um uh looked at the what was happening in chile on the podcasts uh the uprisings were still going on in may uh 2021 chileans voted to elect a constitutional convention what were the results of that election and and were they surprising in any way well yeah actually those results were really uh surprising at that time for uh, a number of reasons uh, first of all, the constitutional reform that allowed uh, to replace the uh, constitution said that every article of the new constitution should be approved by two thirds of the convention, right? So that meant that the right wing only had to get one third of the seats in order to block the most progressive proposals. And they didn't get it. And that was very important. Uh, they were unable to get one third of the seats. Uh, on the other hand, the majority of the convention were not part of the political establishment or the social elite, which uh, I, again, I, it was it really new uh, at that time. Many of them, of them at the same time were uh, independent activists from different parts of the country. Many of them were not part of political parties, even though the majority of the convention can be defined as left-wing, uh, so to speak. But there are also uh, another result that were very surprising and has to do with the original constitutional reform. For instance, there is an important representation of indigenous peoples since they had reserved seats uh, to the convention. And also half of the convention, uh, the, the person who were elected are a, a woman, right? So uh, at least in comparison with, ha with what had been the political and the electoral trajectory of Chilean politics, it was a very new uh, scenario. And what do you attribute this to uh, the, this uh, really big shift in the electorate? in in Chile was were these sentiments always there or was this simply a matter of people deciding okay now I'm going to vote well I think that those uh, electoral change were uh I the direct consequence of the 2019 uprising because as I said before that uprising uh for many people was a uprising against the political establishment so the influence that political parties had in the years, I mean, in the early 2000, all of the sudden disappeared. And the original election will, uh, at least according to the uh, constitutional reform, will have been in, in April 2020, but the pandemic delayed that election to October. So. I think if those elections were uh, held in um, April, the results were have been even more surprising. So yeah, I think it was a direct result of the uprising because many people felt that the constitution should be written 
by people who are not part of the political and social elite. Right. So part of the dissatisfaction with the, as, as I understand it, part of the dissatisfaction with the political elite in Chile is the way the, the center left essentially endorsed the existing neoliberal constitution as part of the transition to democracy. Do you think they, they had a choice that, did, did they make the right pragmatic choice at the time uh, that having any democracy was better than uh, risking another military coup if they were to reject the constitution? Well, yeah, that's a very good question and also a very little one uh, because I don't know, of course. I don't know what will, what will uh, happen if the center-left coalition at that time will uh, made another choices. As I said before, during the 90s, the army, uh, the business class, uh, their, the right wing were still very powerful. So the democratic system as, at that point time was very weak. So I don't know, at least during the 90s, right? Uh, if right. There, there was another feasible choice. But after that, in the 2000s, as the po political situation was very different. And the center-left coalition had some opportunities to uh, trying to at least replace the economic system, if not the constitution itself. For instance, during the second administration of Michel Bachelet between 2013 and 2017, he had the opportunity to open, to initiate a constitutional replacement uh, process or a constitutional change. She had at that time the support of the majority of the people who wanted to uh, replace the constitution. But she, um, yeah, she created this uh, process just at the very end of her second administration. And it was a, a way to, you know, to fulfill that demand to a certain extent, but without the political will necessarily to, to actually do it. After that, Sebastián Piñera was elected, and of course, this uh, idea of replacing the, uh, the constitution was completely eliminated uh, of the political debate. So I think the truth, in the 2000s, the concertation, this uh, center-left government had some opportunities to really reform at least the economic system, even though they they were able to uh, implement some social policies, especially in the 2000 and 2010. For many people, that wasn't enough because the main problem in Chile at that time and still uh, now is inequality. So you can apply some, some social policies uh, in favor of the the lower classes, you can improve to a certain extent the educational system, the health uh, system, but um, we're still living in a very deep, deep structural, unequal uh, society. And that is the problem. And, and of course, the, the, the rich and the powerful haven't gone away uh, since the uprising. 
what are they doing to uh, to fight the proposed changes to the Constitution? And uh, how much at, at risk do you think uh, Chile is for a uh, far right revival? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a very good question because there has been an important conservative reaction the last few years. The media, the right wing, the business class, of course, is, uh, are opposed to the process of constitutional change. This is not very surprising since they have, they are very identified with this neoliberal democracy. Uh, but this reaction is not only a conservative, a conservative upper class reaction. Let's don't forget that in the last presidential election, the far right candidate in the second round get 44% of the votes, which is a lot, of course. Right. Uh, so I, I think there is a, a sort of middle and lower class anxiety about the future. And also, yeah, there are some, some doubts about the feasibility of the political project of the left and also about the new constitution. We are still living in a political, social, and economic economic crisis now in Chile. This conservative, uh, you know, anti-left, anti-progressive reaction can grow, and we can still have this uh, kind of political scenario where, just like in the U.S. or in mm-hmm. Brazil or in East East. Uh, Europe, where a far-right populist candidate can start to be very popular and can be elected, right? So that is a possibility right now in Chile. And actually, uh, at least according to some polls, it is not sure that the new constitution will be approved in the uh, September 4th plebiscite. It will be a very close call. So if the constitution, the new constitution is not approved, that will be a political disaster, especially for the left-wing government uh, in Chile. Does it require a simple majority at the polls? Yes. Yes. Okay. Only a simple majority. And do you think that uh, public sentiment is is in the process of moving back uh, towards the right, or is it simply what we're seeing all over the world where uh, sentiment is uh, fracturing into a, a far light right and a far left. Yeah, I think it's something like like that. I mean, we are, as I said before, we are still in this uh, political, economic, and social crisis. So the political scenario, the political context is very polarized. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that there is a far left in Chile. I mean, there 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 is, of course, but it's really small. Whereas in the right, we, of course, we see that uh, they have a very strong candidate. They have now a new political party. And also the traditional right wing is open to collaborate with this uh, new far right. right. Uh, The current government in Chile is supported by a left wing coalition, but that is a very moderate coalition, at least in comparison with other countries. Right. Uh, it's, a, it's a sort of social democratic coalition. So it's not a far left coalition. It's, it's not a far left government. I agree. I misspoke. It's it's all relative, of course. Uh, 
Um, I, I fell victim to uh, uh, the way journalists tend to divide it. It's a it's a polarization between a moderate center left and an extreme far right. Uh, right. That's like, what that's what we have in the United States. And that's what you see, obviously, in, in Chile and a lot of other places. And and in fact, as an American, you know, it's interesting looking at Chile and seeing so many parallels to uh, what we're experiencing here. A, a lot of our uh, a crisis created by by radical inequality. We see a lot of the the same issues, as I understand it, in in Chile that there's uh, a push to go from their their uh, privatized uh, pension system to a uh, a government pension more like social security and also a lot of protest over high tuition fees at private schools right. and universities just like here where this there's this fight for um uh student loan relief and debt-free college i'm wondering if you think what's what's happening in chile is a is a lesson for the united states well even though the problems can be compared and we can find a very similar process. At the same time, of course, the US and Chile are two very different countries. Uh, right. So I'm, I'm not sure if there is a, a lesson uh, to be learned or, I mean, there is one, but it can apply not only to the US, but also to the rest of the world. And it's also a lesson that we can learn from history. Things can change and sometimes can change very quickly, uh, especially when political, social, or economic uh, structures cannot be seen as a legitimate way of organized society and organized power. So I think if there is a lesson of the Chilean process is that collective action uh, can change things very dramatically at some time. And also, um, I don't know if this is a lesson, but as, at least it's a good idea. The political conflict can be also institutionalized, right? We shouldn't quit to uh, get political power and we can change things at the core of the institution, like in Chile with the, this new uh, constitution. I am aware that the in the US, that is not an option, or at least it's not an issue, the constitution, because you have had only one constitution, but at least in, uh, in Latin America, constitution are symbol of regime changes. Every, you know, uh, after every crisis, like civil wars, dictatorship, etc., new constitution has been created because they reflect new relation of power. And also the constitution can define the role of the state in society, which is of course very important. Actually, that is why the dictatorship understood, I mean, uh, that they had to create a new constitution in order to project their economic, political and social system into the future. And that is why the Chilean people who went to the streets, uh, as I did in 2019, demanded a new constitution. So. Yeah, I guess if there is a lesson is that uh, people can change a uh, thing and can change it in a very institutionalized way and they create a new po political uh, system. 
I, I hope the American people take some inspiration from what they see in in Chile and and throughout Latin America, where there's been there there there's been a lot of effort from people to take government back into their own hands. Uh, one final question: uh, We ask uh, all of our guests, why do you do the work that you do? <laughs> yeah, well, that's a that is a very good question as well. I think the short answer is what any historian you will say. I do what I do to understand the present, to gain a more complex understanding of my surrounding reality. Uh, because I do believe that history can give us tools to analyze reality by knowing how things uh, have come to be. It can also teach us that, well, as I said before, right, um, that what can be seen as permanent is not, and that the collective action of people can change things for good. Great. Well, uh, thank you for joining the podcast, and, and thank you for doing what you do. Thank you. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.